You may be seated. Well, in our study of Acts, we come to this description in chapter 4, this description of the early church. And it's a description that mirrors or parallels the earlier description that we have read in Acts from chapter 2. And I'm not going to revisit uh, both of those descriptions in detail this morning, but there's a phrase in this description that really strikes me, and I wanted to share that with you. And to understand the power of this phrase, it's necessary to back up a little bit, not just to the beginning of Acts, but to the very beginning, book of Genesis. Uh, God, as we know, created all things, created Adam, and said that it was not good that Adam should be alone. And so he created Eve as a partner, as a companion for Adam. And the two of them together were to be fruitful and to fill the earth with their descendants. And so mankind immediately created for relationship, created for community, created for companionship. And we read of Adam and Eve that they were naked, that is, they were open and vulnerable and intimate with no barriers, and that they had no shame. A relationship of such closeness and intimacy. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read of Adam and Eve's choice to live under the delusion that they, not God, had final authority for their lives. And they rebelled against God's word to them and disobeyed, and thus sin entered the human experience. And the immediate effects of sin on them were disastrous. Adam and Eve hid from God. They felt shame in their nakedness. Adam blamed Eve for his own sin. And relationships immediately disrupted. Sin disrupts relationships. Sin estranges people from one another. Sin estranges people from God. And self-interest becomes all-important. And to show just how totally destructive sin is, the very next account in Scripture is the account of Cain murdering his brother Abel. So now you have sin in the world manifesting itself in this dynamic of me first. And so we read in Genesis 6 that by the time of Noah, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man, Abraham, and makes a covenant with him. And God pledges to Abraham to form a nation out of his descendants. And through this nation, to bless all the peoples of the earth. And a few hundred years later, this promise to build a nation has been fulfilled. And this nation called Israel enters again into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. En route between Egypt and Canaan. And God says to them at that time, if you are going to live as my people, live under my loving lordship, it's going to look like this. And God gives to them his laws. Laws concerning ethics, diet, worship, money, sex, harvest, marriage, all kinds of things. And all of these laws reflect the righteousness, the, the perfection of the character of God. And over the centuries that followed the making of that covenant with Israel, it came to be understood that all of the laws that God had given 
were expressions of two supreme, overarching, basic commands. The command to love God and the command to love people, to love one's neighbor. And Jesus himself summarized all of the laws under these two commandments. And a part of God's law that he'd given to his people had to do with care for the poor. Because in a world of sin, where people's default orientation was to seek their own interests first at the expense of others, in such a world, it is inevitable that there will be rich and poor. That there will be haves and have-nots. That there will be the powerful and the oppressed. In a world of sin, that's all about me. You can't help but have a world like that. And so God said to his people, you, Israel, you, my people, are not to live this way. And so he made all of these provisions in his law for the people to prevent poverty from being among them. And among these provisions was a provision of the sabbatical year in Deuteronomy chapter 15. That every seven years there was to be a release of debt among the Israelites. They were to lend freely to one another according to whatever needs arose. And the knowledge that the debt might be forgiven in a very short time was not to prevent somebody from loaning, from giving anyway. And if you live like that, God said, Deuteronomy 15, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 15, 4 and 5. And the idea behind this covenant, this law that God was giving to his people, was that to the extent that Israel actually lived this out, the world would see again what had been lost in Eden, namely the blessing and joy of living in a loving relationship with God under his perfect word. And more than that, the world would begin to see again what God himself was like as they saw the character of God lived out in his people. And that was the great calling of Israel, to demonstrate the reality of God to the world. As the Old Testament then progressed further, this idea of care for the poor and the otherwise underprivileged was increasingly spoken of in terms of justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness were the values and the actions that God's people were to have toward the needy among them. If a widow was in need... Justice and righteousness was when the people took care of that need. If a wealthy or powerful man was oppressing somebody under his power, justice and righteousness meant that that someone's interests were being looked after by the community. Somebody was standing up for them. If circumstances brought poverty or need to someone, justice and righteousness meant that there was provision for that person until they could get on their feet again. And as Israel did this, as they lived a just and a mutually caring, uh, lived as a just and mutually caring community, that would be a powerful demonstration to the world around them of God and what it meant to be the people of God. But Israel did not do this. In fact, they failed spectacularly at it. 
And when God lamented their unfaithfulness to him, it was their abandonment of justice and righteousness that he rebuked them for. They were not taking care of the needs of people, of the widows and the poor. And so the prophet Isaiah then contrasts the worship habits of the people with real worship as God defines it. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, I hate your sacrifices, I hate your gatherings, I hate your special services. Instead, God's words, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And Isaiah's contemporary, the prophet Amos, puts it even more starkly. If you've never read the book of Amos, you need to read it. Chapter 5, the center of the book, is a, a lament being sung at a funeral. That's the setting. And the funeral is for Israel. Israel has died, in a sense, and it's God who is singing this funeral lament. And the cause of death, according to Amos 5, is their abandonment of justice and righteousness. Uh, this is what is said throughout the chapter. You turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. You trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. You afflict the righteous and take bribes. You turn aside the needy. And then again later in the chapter, God says that he hates their worship. Quote, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And then what does God say right away is real worship? But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's worship in God's eyes. But Israel did not keep this covenant. They abandoned it, and to that extent, they died in God's eyes. Israel did not really worship God. Israel did not care for the needy, and therefore Israel singularly failed at living the reality of God before the world, at being the vehicle by which God would reveal himself and bless the nations. There should have been no poor among them, but there was. And part of what Israel's history, in these centuries that we've just scanned very quickly, part of what Israel's history made abundantly clear was that when God sets up his standard and calls people to try to attain to it, they cannot do it. Sin is so completely pervasive that no one has it within themselves to overcome it and therefore live rightly as God's people. Mankind, Israel, cannot return to Edom. To Eden. Then Jesus comes. God the Son, deity himself from heaven, comes to earth. And again, in his teaching, he reminds the people of God's character, of God's values. And in his teaching, Jesus, too, reiterated the reality of righteousness in terms of care for the poor. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But when you give to the needy, in other words, giving to the needy, according to Jesus, is what it means to practice righteousness. Now, surely that makes us sit up and take notice. And so in Jesus' teaching, he again reflects the heart, the character, the nature of God. And maybe more profoundly, by his life, he does what Israel did not do. He perfectly lives justly and righteously. He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He gives dignity to the oppressed. He meets the needs of people. And then having lived the life that God's people should have lived, but did not, could not because of their sin, Jesus dies for that sin on the cross at Calvary. That is, he takes upon himself God's holy punishment for sin. Jesus gave his perfect life for the sinful reality of God's people. And then three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God affirmed Jesus' life and teaching and sacrificial death for us. Now, there's a whole series of sermons that would flesh all this out. But the upshot is that by the death and resurrection of Jesus, status as God's people no longer is on the basis of a person's conformity to God's standard, the law, but on the basis of Jesus, who conformed perfectly to God's standard, his law, and died in our place for our willful failure to confirm to conform to God's law. That's the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Then we come to Acts, Acts chapter 4. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's resumed his place at the throne of God. But that's not the end of the story by a long shot. He sends his Holy Spirit onto his people. It's very significant now, right? Instead of setting up his standard externally for us to conform to, God puts his nature, his person, inside his people. Instead of getting people to try to live like God, God now lives his life in people. Now, Israel, the community centered around keeping God's law, failed badly. What will the new Israel do? What will the new community of God's people do? What will this, this people centered in the grace of God in Christ do? And that's what this little brief description in Acts chapter 4 is about, and its companion description in Acts chapter 2. Here we have the description of the, commu- the life of the community of God's people. When people have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, when they are so transformed by a certain knowledge of his resurrection, and when they are filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ, what then do you see? I'm going to reread the text, and there's a phrase in here that is just remarkable. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And then this powerful sentence, there was not a needy person among them. 
For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here, finally, is the revelation of God through his people to the world. Here, finally, is the righteousness of God expressed in the life of his people. And this is such a profound paragraph one that would be so easy to read over quickly and forget. But what do we see in this community of Jesus? What do Christians look like? They have a deep unity. They're one in heart and soul. They joyfully recognize that Jesus is Lord over all, which means no one said that any of his possessions was his own. Jesus is Lord of what I would normally call mine. And all of that, unity, Jesus' lordship, all of that gets expressed in generosity. If anyone had a need, it got met. Even if it meant somebody has to sell some of their stuff in order to make provision for the need. Now, this is not a mandate for us to sell everything and pool our resources, Acts chapter 4 is descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, it tells us what they did. It does not tell us, you must do this. Because in the very next chapter, Acts 5, Peter tells Ananias, it was your field when you sold it. It was your money. You could have done anything you wanted with it. The difference lies in what they wanted to do with their resources. People didn't sell their stuff because they had to, because it was an expectation and an obligation. They sold it because they wanted to. They provided the needs for each other because they wanted to. What happens in a congregation when we are one in heart and soul? And what happens when none of us considers anything that we possess as really belonging to us? My vehicle is not my vehicle. My property, my home is not my home. My savings, my money, is not my savings and my money. My time is not my time. My skill set, my resources are not mine. It doesn't belong to me. And that is the mindset when we fix ourselves on Jesus and when his Holy Spirit within begins transforming our character, transforming our value system. And when that happens... And we suddenly realize that somebody among us has no food, can't make rent. Well, stuff doesn't belong to me. We just take what we have and we meet the need. Even if it means selling something that you have but don't necessarily need. The second vehicle, the second property. Maybe downsizing the house that you're in so you can help others again not because we have to but because that's the natural action when i am one in heart and soul with the person who is in need if there is a need and i am one in heart and soul with that person won't it just naturally mean that if i have some way to meet their need i will and that was the power of the early church For the first time, people could look at the community of God's people and they could see God's care for people, what a giving and generous God was like. In this upcoming year, I mentioned this already, the leadership of the church is recognizing that, that we want to be more aware of our oneness in heart and soul, not just being social or nice. 
but cultivating and expressing community here. And as, as we do that in the months that lie ahead, it would be good for each of us to think about our finances, our time, our tools, our skills, our love. What can it look like for us to recognize that these things all belong to Jesus anyway? And then just to live accordingly. What can it look like for us to live in such a way that there would be no needy person among us? Not just financial needs. Lonely people would have their need met in relationship. Conflict needs or marriage stress needs would be met in loving mentorship. New Christian faith needs would be met in intentional discipleship. Widows and elderly would have their needs met by getting rides to appointments and having their homes cleaned and their yard work done. Generosity with money and with time and with love. I pray, I pray that we will be one in heart and soul and that our oneness would testify with great power to the resurrection of Jesus that much grace would be upon us and that there will be no needy person among us. Amen. Let me pray as we close our time together.